0: I think we're on some sort of grand evolutionary arc guided by something that we cannot even begin to understand. Try to dwell in that hopeful mystery about it all. And if nothing else, it just makes life a lot more fun.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Shift Podcast, where we share the collective wisdom some of our greatest minds have to offer. I am your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the years, I've had the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these recordings with you for this podcast. Welcome to Shiftmakers. I'm so pleased today to return to the second half of my conversation with author and speaker Elizabeth Lesser. In my previous episode, we had a rich discussion about the unprecedented times we find ourselves in spiritually, and her most recent book, Cassandra Speaks. In part two, she talks about the connection she sees in our inner world and outer world, the biggest lesson she has learned through her years at Omega Institute, the wellness, spirituality, and social change organization she co-founded, She then reflects on the evolution of humanity's consciousness, the powerful life metaphor she finds in childbirth as a former midwife, her advice for disconnecting in modern times, and the paradigm shift she most hopes to see in the world. How do you see the connection between our inner worlds and the outer world?
0: I don't even think we need to use the word connection, because I kind of think they're the same thing. When someone is either not interested in helping the world and living a pretty selfish and consumer-driven world, like just like, I don't care about those other people. They're over there. They're also having an inner life. It's an inner life that's one of shutdownness. Our inner states and our outer behavior, they're, they're interlaced. There's no separation between them. What I have loved about both psychotherapeutic work therapy, let's say, coaching, and also meditative work, introspection through spiritual practice, let's call it. They're not an overlay onto me. They're an uncovering. They're a way of bravely looking at myself and where I'm contributing to disharmony in my own life, in my work, in my staff, in the way I carry myself in the world, in my mothering, and my marriage, like I want and I aim to not just have my inner life be some sort of philosophical thing. It's like, how am I as a wife? What's my bitch meter at today? You know, Am I like working on this? Am I walking what I talk? Inner life to me is really about how genuine and authentic am I? Am I talking a good game or am I trying to actually be what I'm talking about? The hackneyed yet true Gandhian saying, be the change you want to see in the world. Yes, work on change, but at the same time, work on yourself because there's nothing more unappealing to me about myself than when I'm talking one thing and then going home and being something else. And we see that hypocrisy everywhere whether it's politicians clergy people do gooder nonprofit you know and then all of a sudden it's like you what you stole that money you abused that staff member i look at my own behavior through the lens of therapy and meditation and say to myself try to be the change even as you work on the change.
1: Well, one of the ways that you've also created change is through co-founding Omega Institute, which is one of my favorite places on the planet. I've been just so honored to attended so many events and also participated as, as faculty. And it truly is this magical space, this community aimed at, awakening the best in human spirit. I, I guess I'm curious after all these years having just welcomed and nurtured so many seekers and teachers from all over the world, what stands out to you? What have you sort of learned through the experience of holding Omega? And then also, you know, how are the philosophies you founded on co- connected to your own personal philosophies?
0: Well, you know, I was 22 when we started Omega. So we were a bunch of kids who had zero idea of what we were doing. We didn't know anything about marketing or managing a crumbling children's camp and turning it into a campus. And it's been 43 years now of it moving very quickly. I often think of Omega like this monster that we've run behind all these years, who's like, change, grow. (laughs) And we're like, okay, okay. Since I was so young, when I started, I've learned everything there. So I've learned big highfalutin philosophical Buddhist principles and psychological theories and Jung and fitness stuff and diets. And like, you know, I've learned all that. And that's profound blessing to have been the recipient of teachings from some kick-ass teachers. But I think if you were to say, well, what was the biggest thing you learned? It's not all that sexy or glorious. It's that even those people, the saintly ones or the great teachers, they're all just human beings. Everyone is flawed. Everyone flounders. There's a lot of confusion amongst everyone. Rumi's poetry is all about this thing called the open secret, which is that we all walk around pretending that we've got it together and I'm okay and nothing's going wrong. And my family's great, and my job, blah, blah, blah. but we're all quivering, frightened beings. And we wake up at three in the morning and we're like, what is this all about? And where do I go when I die? And are my children okay? And everyone, even the greats, the great teachers, the great spiritual teachers, the health teachers, the psychological gurus. And so I've gotten a front seat with these people who other people put on pedestals. And I have taken everyone off a pedestal. And it's enormously liberating because that means the only person who is your true teacher is you. And you trust your own voice and wisdom. Yes, learn from these people, but don't turn anyone into this sacred icon that you could never reach, because that's just not true, because they also are quivering human beings. And, you know, at first, when I was young, that felt like so uncertain, like, you mean no one? You mean there's no one? There's no daddy coming to save us? The answer is, mm, sorry, no but you can do it.
1: That is a really important lesson that is is really true. And it is a gift. You do have to cultivate that in yourself. Thankfully, as I said, through so much that you do, you've provided so much guidance on that journey. Just looking at the grand arc of humanity on the evolution, like our consciousness. I don't necessarily know what the meaning of existence is, but I'm hoping that we're like evolving. How do you assess where we are in the evolution of humanity's consciousness?
0: I also, my first answer is I don't know, but I am a glad, half full observer of humans and life in general. And, you know, there are quite a few philosophers around today who actually show research that actually human beings are less violent than we used to be. Actually, they're more cooperative. People used to gather in the square and watch people being tortured. Wars were way more prevalent. And there are people who have done a lot of research into this. I don't really even need that research because my intuition tells me that, yes, we're in a race, especially with climate change, for humanity to grow up before the earth is not very hospitable. But I think we will. Mm -hmm. And I think we are. And there's always backlash and outliers who want to destroy more than create. We're seeing a lot of that now amplified through social media. And remember that. Remember that the amplification is greater than the reality right now. I believe most people are sick and tired of the loud, obnoxious voices of the destroyer clan. I think we're on some sort of grand evolutionary arc guided by something that we cannot even begin to understand. So I try to dwell in that hopeful mystery about it all. And if nothing else, it just makes life a lot more
1: fun. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like maybe you already know about this campaign that I have with Gloria Steinem around this phrase, we are linked, not ranked. But the more and more I think about this phrase, we are linked, not ranked, it does seem like such a sort of just fitting mantra for our times about all these, and you've talked about this before and talking about power, all these false hierarchies and divides. What does that phrase we are linked, not ranked mean to you?
0: Well, like all uh, sound bites, there's lots of ways to say but you know, sometimes we are ranked and it's okay. So like, given the fact that It's a huge catch-all phrase, and sometimes we aren't linked, and sometimes we are ranked. Given that, I love that phrase. I still have that bracelet going back to what I said about the poet Rumi, who talks about the open secret, that we're all hiding a secret from each other, that we're the same. We're the same in our weakness. We're the same in our strength. We're the same in our desires, all of us, men, women, all genders, all colors, all countries, we are the same. And therefore, we're linked. And no one is more special than anyone else. No one's job is more important. No, that is what every religion is based on. It's mm-hmm. the truth. It's not some sort of mamby-pamby desire that one day we'd get to it. we are It's true. It's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And it's really just getting out of the headset that we are divided and ranked, you know, like better, more special, more deserving, more worthy. And that's where the inner work comes in. The more each one of us can know our worth, put away the shame and the guilt and stand in our worth and notice the other person's worth. Sometimes we forget to say that. And then we come sort of like little narcissists, but like my worthiness actually means your worthiness. So How do we all live together in in our glorious worth? Uh, together
1: the pandemic and climate change has also been a way for us all to also really realize that we're we really truly are linked I've been thinking about that a lot one of my very favorite quotes from our f- very first interview was this here is that audio from my archives
2: I think that life is a freaking magic carpet ride it's amazing mm-hmm. everything about it is mysterious and Beautiful and touching and tragic and lovely and mm-hmm. mystical. And we waste so much time, almost every minute, mm-hmm. on swimming against the river. Life is about change. It never stops moving, and it's moving this human body inexorably towards its demise. And we, as these little quads of human beingness, spend most of our time swimming Mm -hmm. as hard as we can against that river. If we would turn on our back and float Mm -hmm. on this river and look up at the sky and around at the banks, Mm -hmm. it's so beautiful. And we don't have to fight it and fight each other. There's enough for everybody, Mm -hmm. and we're greedy and scared. So to me, the purpose of life is to enjoy it. It's to enjoy the gift and to make sure that other people have an opportunity to enjoy
1: the gift. So I think about that concept so much of like catch myself swimming against the river. Can you sort of elaborate on that or what are your thoughts on that?
0: What she said, even <laughs> though it was me. <laughs> I was a midwife in my first job in life. It was a, the teachable moment of that whole experience of delivering many, many babies was watching what would happen when a woman would work with her body and relax into a contraction and let the uterus open, and let the baby come out, as opposed to what we mostly do in painful times in life. I mean, admit it, life is a lot of painful times, as we tighten up against it. No, I don't want it. No, it shouldn't happen to me. And I would watch women in labor, the more you tighten against the pain, the more you're keeping the uterus tight, and the cervix tight, and the baby can't come out. So the a real helpful hint. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, laboring women, it's really hard, but is to relax into the pain mm-hmm. and to say, I know you are here to open me so the baby can come out. That metaphor of childbirth has served me so deeply mm-hmm. that relaxing into life so the pandemic comes. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction was, oh no. I don't want this, as if my not wanting it is going to do anything. And like, no, it's gonna do this and that, and no, I won't do this, I won't, no. And then everybody's like fighting reality as opposed to like, oh, oh, a pandemic came into our times. Wonder why, oh, climate change, oh, international trade, oh, oneness. Okay, what can we do together for this we could have gotten over it so much faster if that metaphor of, of accepting and working with, as opposed to fighting against, it seems to be one of the real flaws in, in whomever designed us humans.
1: <laughs> like,
0: We fight change, even though change is what happens. I still stand by floating on the back on my back, on the river of change, you know, aging, living in an aging body is daily practice for saying like, yeah, so what? I've got my neck is now like dripping down into my chest and my legs and my breasts, you know, like everything's sagging, like, like that's what happens. That is what happens to the human body. You want to waste your energy, everything from bemoaning to exercising too much so that you hurt your body and it's like no no this is what happens float on your back in the river of aging float on your back in the river of changes at work your children leaving whatever it is it's like natural it happens move with it it just opens up miracles it's an invitation of 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 joy and the fighting against is an invitation of exhaustion season two of shift makers was brought to you by the shift network shift offers courses programs and workshops to unlock your full potential through transformative education and media with like-minded allies who are called to create a better world visit the ShiftNetwork.com to learn more about their online courses summits and events
1: you know, just in terms of thinking about what we need to do in terms of our own inner journey and and spending that time cultivating our relationship with our inner world and watching our thoughts. I think I speak for a lot of people how challenging some of this is, particularly right now where there's so many inputs and there's so much pressure to social media and stay connected and so much pulling at our attention all the time. So I was just curious because obviously it's it's almost impossible right now to, to disconnect. My, my my phone's silenced now, but it's it's on. You know, it's just like, there's always good, I'm going to have now texts and eat, right, exactly. So like, what is your prescription for like self care during modern times? Like, how do you balance that?
0: I did something that I actually heard about from Ariana Huffington, but I actually did go on a media diet. It's the same way that food diets work, like it's not going to solve it, but it's going to imprint into you what life can be like with less of the input. And so I got off Facebook, I got off Instagram, I've never been a Twitter person. I'm a very communicative person. I'm addicted to communication. (laughs) So some people find it easier to be like, I've never been on Facebook or I don't have a Twitter account, but like, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Input, communication, ideas. After like deep immersion into Instagram and Facebook, I stopped. Mm -hmm. I just stopped. Ever since going back on, I use it very little. Mm -hmm. It really helped me because what was happening was I would start scrolling let's say Instagram, and it would do one of three things. One, make me feel really shitty about my own life. Why do they have this? Why do they have a house here and that and this? And how come their relationship and their kids? Like, I would just, I would be like, I feel terrible. The other, and I knew it was all smoke and mirrors, but I still would feel terrible. And then the other thing is I would feel overwhelmed with news, doom scrolling. And then I would also feel, Oh my God, I'm not on this enough. I need to populate my page with more, more, more. And she's getting ahead and her book's selling better. And like it made me feel horrible. And I wasn't doing any good for anyone else, you know? So now I post maybe once every other week and I make it long and thoughtful, very anti social media, like <laughs> the opposite of Twitter lots of words.
1: I love your posts. Mm-hmm.
0: I still, you know, check it way more than I should mm-hmm. all of the feeds and my email, I have pulled back. And it has really been m- much more healthy for me. Mm-hmm. It's not good. It does not make me feel good. And I, I have noticed a correlation between when I'm feeling grounded, calm and healthy. I think I exude that more and help the people around me. When I'm comparative, annoyed, and feeling bad about myself, it doesn't help me or anyone else. So why am I doing it?
1: What are things that you think you can like sprinkle in your day that maybe aren't for people who don't have a lot of time that you recommend?
0: Well, I'm a writer. And I know that if I'm not writing even a little bit every day, I don't, I'm not in my best place. So Mm -hmm. writing is a practice for me. Meditation it's sort of a misnomer when I say I meditate every day because I don't like sit down for 30 minutes on an approved Buddhist pillow and set the timer and ring the bell. It's become a corrective, natural practice for me. Sometimes it's like strong back, soft front, three breaths. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes it's doing this, the do no harm, take no shit, and just holding it for a while and saying to myself, am I overdoing the take no shit or the do no harm? I I am a doormat today. Am I obnoxious? Like, okay, let's bring them together. And sometimes I will actually sit down and meditate. Like my husband and I often sit in the morning together and one of us opens a book. We have like our favorite spiritual books on our coffee table and read reads a page, and then we'll sit quietly for 10 minutes together. We don't do that every day. Really good for our relationship when we do, because it reminds us that that's the core of our attraction to each other, that we're both like genuine seekers And then I hesitate to say it because I don't want you to think like I'm so good, but I try to be kind. I think kindness is the fruit of all of the work we do, whether in the world, what do we want? we want, what is the Me Too movement? Men, could you please be kinder to the women in your life and not treat them like objects? White women, could you be kind about your privilege? Like it all comes down to a soft and kind heart that's open to the suffering and dignity of others. So I try to practice kindness.
1: You know that just it makes me think about you know when I interviewed the amazing Dr Jane Goodall and I was talking to her about what's your wish for the children of the future for humanity and and she had answered that we regain wisdom but that we reconnect our heads to our hearts feels like yeah kindness. We live in our
0: heads. We're we're so much like living here. We're not in our bodies and we're not in our hearts so much of the time. Mm -hmm. And when those three things are working together, you know, calm mind, open heart, beloved body, calm mind, open heart, beloved body. I say that those three things to myself over and over. Mm -hmm. Stop the crazy blah, blah, blah in the mind. Unfreeze the wounded heart open it, and love your body just as it is.
1: I I just say that over and over. Mm, No, that is absolutely transformational. Thank you for giving me some new affirmations and meditations today. So last question, this podcast is called Shift Makers. What paradigm shift would you most want to see in the world? And you know, are you hopeful we can achieve it?
0: Well, there's so many problems that intersect. But if I had to pick one, I always say I vote for the trees, the climate change crisis to me. I know they all intersect. It's one big Venn diagram. I know that environmental injustice, marginalized cultures the most. I know that you can't really just pick one thing, but I'm going to pick one thing. And that's, I would hope there would be a paradigm shift in the way we live on our planet, that we live on it more consciously, more lightly, using less, wanting less, being Happy with what we have as opposed to always getting more, digging more excavating more. Just enough. Mm. Enough.
1: Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for everything that you do to make this world a better place, a kinder, more compassionate, more aware, more hopeful place. All the energy that you put through your words and your wisdom and your work and your books and Omega, you have so much wisdom to share. I always get so much out of our conversation. So
0: thank you. Thanks for having me and right back at you with all the gratitude for what you do.
1: You can find out more about Elizabeth Lesser and her work at elizabethlesser.org and about Omega Institute at eomega.org. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again.
0: Shift Makers was created by Marianne Schnall, and Season 2 was developed by Joy Donnell. Story producer and editor A. Kirsten, research assistant Angela Joshi. Some audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Special thanks to Emiliano Lamon. For more information about this podcast or our host Marianne Schnall, please visit MarianneSchnall.com.